Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. Give me a chat about Greek fire, a lost technology. Uh, a weapon that the Byzantine Empire was able to deploy to great effect in defending and growing their realm over the centuries across the medieval era. And Greek fire is, as as unbelievable as this is going to sound to you, it is a liquid substance that burns furiously even when doused with water. And as such, it was principally used by the Byzantines in naval warfare, fired from their ships at enemy vessels, setting them ablaze with fire that was more or less impossible to extinguish. This is a remarkable substance for, for many, many reasons. Not only did it um, uh, win the Byzantines all sorts of incredibly important battles, uh, not only was it enormously deadly and destructive, it was also a truly terrifying weapon. There are accounts of soldiers and sailors leaping off their burning ships, choosing to drown rather than be burnt to death as Greek fire roared to life around them, consuming everything in its wake. The psychological impact of Greek fire was uh, was perhaps just as important as its, uh, well, you know, burning people to cinders impact. Um, and it's also remarkable as a technology that aided the Byzantines in becoming and remaining one of the most important and powerful realms of the medieval period. But more remarkable than any of these things when it comes to Greek fire is that we, today, don't know how it was made. And this is a very unusual thing. Let me tell you, there aren't many historical technologies that remain a mystery to us today in the 21st century, but the Byzantines guarded the military secret of Greek fire so fiercely that it has not stood the test of time. Now, of course, we've tried to recreate Greek fire. Of course we have, uh, and have gone some way in doing so. But at the end of the day, we haven't been able to make a substance that behaves exactly like Greek fire was said to. We have not cracked the code and uncovered the lost secret of Greek fire. So today... We're going to talk about this substance in great detail. We're going to get across every aspect of it. We'll talk about when and how the Byzantines deployed Greek fire. We'll talk about how it shaped both warfare and the Byzantine Empire more broadly at the time. And uh, we'll also talk about, or at least try to talk about, how it was made and what it was made of. So, as ever, a lot to get across today. Let's get straight into it here and have a chat about Greek fire. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 672 BCE, the year that Greek fire was first developed, apparently, by a bloke named Kalinikos of Heliopolis. Uh, this was according to uh, some historians at the time, but whether this, is, uh, whether this is actually the case remains up for debate. While Kalinikos is widely credited with the invention of Greek fire, there are plenty of historians who instead reckon um, that it wasn't so much invented in you know one single moment as it was developed by successive generations of, of Byzantine inventor, inventors and engineers. Because, after all, it's not as if using fire in warfare was a new idea, right? Greek fire was a new type of incendiary weapon, um, but it wasn't as if it were the... It, it's not as if this is the first time that someone has thought, oh, hang on, hang on one second. How about we weaponize this immensely dangerous and destructive natural force? People had been using fire in warfare for thousands of years, um, both in terms of actual weaponry, you know, like your like your, uh, your flaming arrows, for instance, 
but uh, more more broadly, uh, as a tool in more general strategic terms, like burning down crops to speed up sieges by disrupting food supplies. Throughout ancient and, and classical history, people used fire and incendiary weapons uh, when fighting their foes, not just fire arrows and burnt crops, but, you know, massive firebombs, uh, clay pots with flammable substances that had been launched from catapults, or uh, smaller projectiles, uh, grenade-like throwables. Uh, there had also been uh, rudimentary flamethrowers developed by various ancient civilizations as well. Bottom line is, fire has been a part of human warfare for a very long time, um, a long time before the Byzantines came up with Greek fire. But I'll tell you this, Greek fire itself, absolute game changer. Absolute game changer uh, for the Byzantines, who used it to great effect against, uh, to begin with, the relentless is- Islamic conquerors from the east and in the fullness of time to defend their realm, defend their empire, and then grow it further and further and take what ended up being more or less complete control of the uh, of the seas and the waters that surrounded their territory. Um, but uh, before we get into all of that, right, uh, let's talk about what at its most basic Greek fire was and what it did. So I mentioned before, Greek fire, incendiary weapon, obviously, uh, and it took the form of a liquid, a sticky sort of thick liquid. And uh, it was principally used in naval conflict because uh, ships at the time were so enthusiastically flammable or, or inflammable, if you like. One of the ridiculous quirks of this ridiculous language is that the words flammable and inflammable both mean the same thing, able to be set on fire. I was actually curious about this, right? I, just, I decided to find out why. Um, it turns out the, that the, the Latin root of the word flammable uh, trips us up here because many English words have an in prefix, I-N, right, that creates an antonym. Uh, for instance, accurate becomes inaccurate. Uh, convenient becomes inconvenient. Complete becomes incomplete. The, the list goes on. There's heaps of them. However, the in prefix in Latin, it doesn't make something an antonym. It instead means into, right? And we see this um, this prefix or variations on it in, in certain English verbs, um, inscribe, insert, Again, the list goes on. But it doesn't come up all that much with adjectives, where the in prefix generally means not rather than into. So when flammable arrived uh, to join the English language, it brought its weird twin inflammable with it. And both these words mean more or less the same thing. There are language nerds out there who argue um, that something that is flammable is able to be set alight, whereas inflammable refers to something that can burst into flames on its own given the right conditions. I don't know what's going on with that. Then on top of that, there are real nitpickers who insist that um, there are certain things that are neither flammable or inflammable, but are instead combustible. Uh, the most uh, most famous example of, of such a substance is oxygen, I was surprised to learn, uh, which is not flammable. Uh, instead, it is combustible. It helps other things burn, even if it doesn't actually catch fire itself. Anyway, even if there are all of these arguments about definitions, interestingly, there have been efforts to move away from the word inflammable altogether because of how confusing it is, obviously, right? You le- you read a label on something that says inflammable and you think, ah, excellent. This will be a, a safe thing to have around while I, I don't know, have fun playing with this box of matches. And then the next thing you know, your eyebrows have packed their bags and moves, moved away. So just stick with flammable and um, non-flammable. There we go. And uh Yes, fine. Also combustible. If you're going to split hairs, fine. And, and of course, the antonym for combustible is incombustible, which, you know, unlike inflammable, actually means non-combustible. Anyway, whatever. Doesn't matter. Something that certainly something that certainly was flammable or combustible or whatever the bloody hell it was, was Greek fire. 
Very, very much so, in fact, uh, as indeed were the things that the Byzantines would seek to apply Greek fire to, principally enemy ships. Of course, ships back then, more or less always built almost completely out of wood or uh, or other excitingly flammable uh, materials. And here's the really interesting thing about Greek fire, the thing that sets it apart from so many other incendiary weapons, both historical and modern. Uh, Generally speaking, um, you might not get the best results when using fire as a weapon when your enemies have limitless access to water, famously, you know, the first line of defense against most things that are on fire. And um, people tend to have a lot of access to water when they're on a ship. But Greek fire couldn't be put out by water, which, as you can imagine, was a bit of a problem for the people on the ship that was burning down on account of it, but also completely revolutionized naval warfare for the Byzantines. Greek fire could only be put out by other things, uh, sand or or vinegar. Um, And ships don't generally have access to vast quantities of these things compared to water. And what's more, not only could water not extinguish Greek fire, some accounts indicate that water actually ignited it and made it burn even more furiously than before. It could burn on top of the surface of water, meaning that even if you missed when you were spraying it towards an enemy ship, the the ship would still be surrounded by flames burning on the surface of the sea itself. And uh, as we'll talk about, the Byzantines developed sophisticated and very effective ways to shoot or to spray their Greek fire onto other ships to devastating effect. It almost single-handedly turned the tides of of the conflicts that the Byzantines were in, especially when it came to Constantinople's naval dominance and the defense of the capital city uh, situated as it is, you know, surrounded by water. So, Just think of what Greek fire represented to the Byzantine Empire, an incendiary weapon that could be be brought to bear against wooden ships, ships that when set on fire couldn't rely on the water that was all around them to put the fire out. This sounds a bit like magic, even today. So just think what the 7th century enemies of the Byzantines thought, like the the sci-fi author Arthur C. Clarke once wrote, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. But it wasn't magic. It was science. A science that we have lost, as we'll talk about. Because the modern day efforts that we've made to create Greek fire haven't resulted in all that much. But we'll come back to that. We'll come back to talking about its composition and its creation and why we still can't figure out how to make it for now. We'll return to the 7th century and we'll talk about what Greek fire did to change Byzantine history. Now, whether it was this fella, uh, Kalonikos of Heliopolis, who invented it or not, the Byzantines quickly adopted the technology in the late 7th century, at a time that they were in desperate need of a military edge. The Byzantines had been at war with the uh, the Persian Sassanid Empire for a very long time, hundreds of years, uh, in the grand scheme of things. And then, uh, on top of this, the 7th century saw Muslim conquerors of the expansionist uh, Rashidun and Umayyad Caliphates start to spread. They marched out of the Middle East into the Levant and from there to North Africa in the West, to Persia in the East, and of course, towards the Byzantine Empire in the North. And to begin with, the Byzantine Empire struggled mightily against this approaching onslaught as the as the Levant fell to the encroaching Rashidun and Umayyad hordes. Um, and as they set their sight on Constantinople, the Byzantine capital, it really did seem like the Byzantines were in deep poop. They'd been fighting off Arab conquerors for decades by this stage. They also had their hands full with their Persian enemies to the east, uh, other opportunistic foes to the west, like the Lombards uh, across the Adriatic Sea at the top of the Italian peninsula. So they're not having a good time of things. And then 
it only gets worse from there because in 674, the Umayyads arrived at Constantinople after having driven the, the Byzantines north after a series of defeats. And they prepared to take the capital by seizing and setting up a network of coastal bases before establishing a naval blockade of the city itself. And so, in the end, 674 saw the first siege of Constantinople with 200,000 invading Umayyads bearing down on the 40,000 or so Byzantines who stood ready to defend their grand city. The Umayyads launched raids on both land and sea. They disrupted the city's supply lines and tried to wear it down as the months turned to years as the siege continued. However, the Byzantines had a secret weapon. As the Umayyads had approached, Emperor Constantine IV had ordered his navy outfitted with this brand new secret technology, and in 677, it was finally ready to go. The Byzantines by this stage are having a terrible time. Not only are the Umayyads grinding them down around Constantinople, um, the efforts that the Byzantines had to go to in, old, in order to hold onto their capital meant that other foes, like the Lombards I mentioned before, or the Slavs, they were starting to encroach into Byzantine territory from the west. But then, in the autumn of 677, with everything finally ready, Constantine sent his navy out to meet the Umayyads head-on, and it was an absolute bloodbath. The Byzantines launched their newly equipped ships and set upon their foes, drenching them in liquid fire, unquenchable and furious, and sent their Umayyad ships, along with thousands of crew and the soldiers that they carried, to the bottom of the sea. Now, just imagine this from the Umayyad perspective, right? You've got the city surrounded. You're so confident of victory that you've started to cultivate crops in the regions around Constantinople. And all that's left is to squeeze the life out of the people defending the city. And then, out of nowhere, these Byzantine ships emerge and start to spew liquid fire onto your fleet. And as you throw water on the fire to put it out, it only burns hotter and brighter. Think of the confusion, the terror, the panic that you would feel coming up against something as inexplicable and as deadly as this stuff was. There are accounts of Umayyad soldiers and, 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 and sailors hurling themselves into the water to avoid the flames and instead meeting a watery death instead of a fiery one. The Umayyad fleet around Constantinople was almost completely destroyed. And at the same time as this took place, Constantine sent, an, sent out an army to attack the Umayyads on land, who were now completely bereft of any sea-based support. And so in total, it's estimated that half the Umayyad forces were wiped out. 100,000 men, some by the sword, but most by fire. Well, actually, a fair few by water as well, as I said. It, it, those that didn't stick around as their ships burnt to a crisp, they jumped overboard and then just drowned. Doesn't sound all that much better, to be honest. And then, and then there are the really lucky ones, the ones who jumped overboard and landed in the pools of fire on the water's surface. They got to burn and drown to death at the same time. How, how lucky they were. Anyway, this stunning victory brought about by the power of Greek fire, it led to the Umayyads lifting the siege and retreating, only for what remained of their fleet to then run into a storm on the way home and face further destruction. So just a terrible time for them all around. Not a good result for the Umayyads, but it was a turning point for the Byzantines as their newfound naval supremacy kept their empire alive through this period of crisis with enemies on all sides. 
Honestly, if Constantinople had fallen at that stage in, in, in the late 7th century, that probably would have been it for the Byzantine Empire. And as the Byzantine Empire went on to become one of the most powerful realms in medieval history, just imagine how different things might have been. But no, Greek fire helped to keep the empire together and Constantine IV quickly moved to reconsolidate Byzantine power over the lands and territories that his enemies were, were eyeing off. Although that didn't stop the Umyads from trying uh, again in uh, in 717. Uh, once more, there were coastal bases, there were the blockades on both land and sea. There was a huge fleet of Umyad ships, this time as, mu- as many as a thousand ships bore down on Constantinople. And with the Byzantines once again on the back foot, the Umyads sailed right into the Bosporus Strait itself, the narrow waterway that divides not just the city of Constantinople, today Istanbul, but the continents of Europe and Asia. And they sailed their ships into the Bosporus, intending to land troops there and take the city from within. But again, the Byzantines launched their ships, equipped as they were with Greek fire, and set the Bosporus ablaze. The city bathed in the light of the Umayyad fleet sinking below the waters for the second time. Even when the Umayyads sent another fleet and had another crack at the city, they could do absolutely nothing against the might of Greek fire and were burnt to ashes on the waters around Constantinople as the Byzantines defended their home city. And so, in the end, early Islamic conquerors were never able to take Constantinople, even as, as, as the might of these Muslim conquerors spread across North Africa into Persia, all the way into Europe as well, across the Iberian Peninsula. They never managed to take Constantinople. Um, I say never. They, they did get there eventually, didn't they? They did get there eventually. Episode 222, The Fall of Constantinople, get across it. Uh, but that was centuries away. And in the meantime... It was Greek fire, the unmatched might of the Byzantine navy that kept the empire safe. And now, far from being on the back foot, the Byzantines, the Byzantines they used this incredible weapon that they, they developed to grow and expand their realm in the centuries that followed. Um, but unlike most weapons technologies that were, uh, that were discovered and, and developed in this way, it never spread to other realms. It was a closely, a tightly guarded secret. And the Byzantines ensured their supremacy on water by never allowing anyone else to access the secrets of Greek fire. In fact, very few Byzantines knew the secret, as we'll talk about. Uh, even the way that it was made, that the Greek fire was made, was heavily compartmentalised with the people who worked on one aspect of the, of the creation process, not knowing any of the other steps involved in, in making the substance. The Byzantines used their secret weapon in fighting the Saracens throughout the Levant, uh, in fighting the Bulgars and the Rus to the north, even when, when the need arose in fighting themselves during periods of civil war. It was used all the way from the 8th century right, right through to the 15th century, and as we'll talk about, completely changed the way that battles were fought at sea. Honestly, Greek fire was one of the reasons. It wasn't the only reason by, by any stretch of the imagination, but it was one of the reasons that the Byzantine Empire grew to be as powerful as it did, and it was certainly one of the reasons why it stuck around for as long as it did. Near total naval supremacy for a realm that was surrounded by water on three sides, not such a bad situation for the Byzantines, especially when you lead the arms race with your enemies thanks to this secret, I don't know, super weapon? I know it sounds weird to call it that when today, you know, the super weapons that we have are nuclear warheads strapped to intercontinental ballistic missiles, but... That is kind of what Greek fire was. Under the right conditions, it was completely incontestable. It was a super weapon. 
But look, we could be here all day talking about the battles fought with Greek fire and the uh, the specific instances where Byzantines deployed it against their foes, but I don't want to talk about that so much as I want to talk about how it was deployed rather than where and when it was deployed. And uh, and then, as a result of that, I also want to tell you about how its use changed naval warfare of the time. So, the how first. There were three principal ways in which Greek fire was deployed by the Byzantines. Uh, number one, large mechanisms that they called siphons uh, that were installed on Byzantine ships, usually right up at the front, at the bow, uh, great big massive flamethrowers. They were also uh, occasionally uh, affixed to the, the sides or the, or the stern of a ship, but usually on the bow. Um, and they also made uh, smaller sized siphons. This is the second method uh, for, for the deployment of Greek fire. Uh, smaller sized siphons called Cairo siphons, uh, which were essentially just handheld flamethrowers. They were able to be picked up and carried around and used by individual soldiers. And finally, the third way was through uh, small pots and jars that were designed to be thrown. These jars would be filled with Greek fire. They'd be thrown, they'd break, and the the, the liquid would go everywhere, catch fire. These were essentially incendiary grenades, right? An early, an early form of incendiary grenades. Um, now, obviously, the uh, enormous siphons that I mentioned firstly, um, they were more or less exclusively used in naval combat, but the hand siphons and the grenades, they were, they were also used on land, uh, particularly in defending sieges uh, when they would, they'd be used to burn down siege engines, rams and towers and whatever else. But I want to talk about these big siphons first because they're probably the most famous and the most notable uh, uh, deployment method when it comes to uh, when it comes to Greek fire. So, um, I'll note once more at this point that we are talking about some of the most strictly guarded military secrets in medieval history. Uh, so our knowledge of these things is hardly comprehensive. We only have a partial understanding of not just Greek fire but the ways in which it was deployed. So with that in mind, I'll try to tell you as much as we have figured out about siphons. But again, it's worth noting that this is certainly by no means comprehensive. Anyway, these siphons. They were great big tubes at the bow of a ship, uh, typically the ship, uh, a ship known as the Byzantine Dromon, a uh, type of galley that grew to define the Byzantine Navy, Navy, especially with its association with Greek fire. And these tubes, they were made of iron or brass, and they were mounted on a swivel so they could be aimed, um, and usually they were decorated uh, with an, uh, a decorative animal head at the nozzle of the tube. And um, this tube was connected to a leather hose that went through the deck of the ship to uh, the area below deck where the liquid, the, the, the Greek fire, the, the liquid that would be spewed out of the tube was, uh, was prepared, right? And again, some of this is guesswork. Some of this is sort of putting together uh, various accounts and sources that we have, none of which are definitive to try to figure out what exactly was going on below decks. But um, as far as we can figure it out, below decks there were furnaces of all things, not the sort of uh, not the sort of thing that you would typically find ensconced in the very flammable hull of uh, of a wooden vessel. But uh, these furnaces were used to heat up the 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 li- heat up heat up the enormously overpoweringly flammable liquid that was Greek fire. But it uh, it needed to be heated up because uh, we think at least because it was very thick and very sticky and very viscous. And so if uh, if the Byzantines wanted to shoot it over any great distance rather than have it just you know sort of ooze out of the end of the tube. Uh, it needed to be made runnier, and the best way to make it runny was to heat it up. And to make uh, this already extremely dangerous situation even more dangerouser for the people uh, operating the, the siphons, they didn't just heat up the liquid, right? They needed a way to propel it out of the tube, and uh, the only way to uh, propel it out of the tube reliably, again, over any great distance, was to then 
pressurize the container in which it was held. So just think of this, right? You've got a a bellows-powered furnace heating an extremely flammable and or combustible liquid um, that is being pressurized at the same time by a team working with hand pumps. This sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. This sounds like the most colossally idiotic idea on the sea, only to be overtaken many years later, of course, by the K-Class Submarines, episode 12. Get across it if you must. Those episodes, those early episodes really aren't very good. Anyway, this sounds like the stupidest thing that anyone's ever thought of, but apparently it just worked. This disaster waiting to happen just didn't happen. Apparently these things never exploded. They should have, at least sometimes, but they just didn't seem to, like, ever. So, this remains something of a mystery. Modern reconstructions of of, of hypothetical mechanisms uh, still haven't managed to fully account for how these siphons actually worked, which is just incredible. But they did work, and because of the the heat and the pressure, um, the the crews of, of of the Byzantine Romans were able to fire the fire, fire this Greek fire at enemy ships across pretty pretty great distances, fifteen meters or more. Uh, set them ablaze uh, with these unquenchable flames, and that was generally that. It didn't take much more, the uh, the successful deployment of Greek fire against enemy ships, to just win a, a naval battle then and there. So those are the uh, those are the, the ship-bound siphons, but there were also the hand siphons I mentioned before. They're a little easy to explain. Uh, we, we sort of have a, a reasonably full understanding of these things uh, because they were basically just big, big syringes. Um, they were big syringes that were used to squirt Greek fire a, a short-ish distance. Um, it's a, it's still a little little uncertain how the stuff was ignited, uh, whether it um, ignited in contact with water or uh, perhaps you you know you had to chuck something that was burning you had to throw that at whatever you'd shot the Greek fire on top of to in order to set it aflame. But whatever the case. Um, these uh, these handheld siphons were just as effective on land as they were on sea, and uh, they were put to use at close range, where they could burn anything from a ram to a group of soldiers. Byzantines would, as I mentioned, put them to very effective use in sieges, especially when they could be fired from above, atop a wall or something like that, to extend the the range and the area uh, that was uh, that was covered by the by the fire. Um, and uh, you can just imagine the the. The besieging army wheeling up its heavy siege engines, its towers, its rams, whatever else, ready to try to knock down the walls and uh, and break into a city. And then the Byzantines turn up with these syringes filled with Greek fire and set everything alight, not just the siege engines, but the people trying to wield them as well. And that would generally be that. They can't put it out. They can't use water to extinguish it. Unless they've got a pot of vinegar nearby, they are going to be in big trouble. Uh, but there was also this third uh, method of deployment, the one I mentioned before, and and, and the most the, the most simple uh, way to uh, to deploy the Greek fire was uh, these grenades. These grenades that I talked about: um, a breakable pot or a jar, fill it up with Greek fire, chuck it at whatever it is that you want to be on fire, and uh, and that was that was that on land on sea doesn't matter. Uh, these grenades had their intended effect, uh, especially if fires were already burning thanks to you know other previous deployments of Greek fire. But uh, one interesting thing about these grenades, which is actually now I'm realizing almost certainly not the correct term for them, these these handheld throwables, um, is that they weren't actually all handheld. Um, the Byzantines would use much larger pots and jars, larger than could be easily thrown, and fill them up with Greek fire and load them into catapults uh, to fire at the enemy. So now you've got an early form of firebombing, which again, as I mentioned, isn't uh, isn't unprecedented. There were other civilizations 
hundreds of years before the Byzantines who used weapons like this, uh, early forms of firebombs, but none of them were anywhere near as effective, as, as devastating and, and as destructive and as terrifying as Greek fire was. Now, I will mention, as, 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 as incredible as all of this sounds, as destructive as Greek fire was, um, it did have its drawbacks, especially when fired from those big siphons on, on a ship, the, the ones I started off uh, talking about. Because principally, um, Greek fire could only really be used effectively on calm seas without strong winds or, or waves, which definitely limited its use in some cases. Um, it was not the sort of thing that you could deploy in every single naval battle, particularly if there were rough or choppy waters or if there were there were unfavorable conditions, if there was wind that would blow it back onto your ships. There was a very limited window of opportunity for Byzantines to use um, this weapon uh, on the sea. But when they did, as I say, staggeringly effective. And on top of this, it was obviously a very, very dangerous thing to handle Greek fire uh, by the Byzantines themselves. And there aren't an enormous number of accounts of, you know, things like accidents and self-inflicted deaths. But you'd have to imagine that carelessness with Greg Fire would have very quick and very fatal consequences. So this weapon wasn't, by all means, perfect. It wasn't something that, you know, completely and utterly revolutionised warfare on the spot. But it did have a number of very, very important uh, uh, changes to the way that battles were fought, particularly on the water. Because the foes of the Byzantines had to learn to adapt to Greek fire, had to try to mitigate its effectiveness somehow. And this is what brought about these changes, right? Um, the most obvious of which is the fact that uh, before the advent of Greek fire, naval combat had been, uh, for want of a better term, it had been melee rather than ranged. When we think of um, ship-to-ship combat these days, we think of cannons and guns and huge weapons that can devastate from range. But that wasn't the case back in the late classical and early, and, and early medieval periods. Uh, one of the most common and effective strategies was uh, boarding, ramming. Uh, ships would build up speed, they'd ram into an enemy vessel, they'd hope to damage and sink it that way. But failing that, you would board and engage in hand-to-hand combat on the deck of a ship, uh, again, hoping to take the ship out of action by just killing its crew. But with Greek fire, all of a sudden, it became extremely dangerous to get too close to a Byzantine dromon. While... Close quarters naval combat persisted elsewhere. When going up against the Byzantines, you really needed to keep your distance on the water. Uh, Of course, there were impressively optimistic sea commanders that tried other approaches. Um, Some covered their ships with vinegar-soaked hides. That must have smelled really good. Uh, They tried to give their hulls protective coatings that they thought might be fireproof. Uh, Or hilariously tried to attack the Byzantines only during storms with the rain lashing down and the winds blowing, and none of this worked. Greek fire ignored water altogether. It burnt through hull mast and rigging no matter no matter what the conditions were, as long as the Byzantines were able to avoid deploying it into, you know, a headwind and burn their own ships up as a result. Um, Greek fire meant that they were untouchable on the water in, in many respects. They didn't lose a lot of sea battles where uh, Greek fire was effectively deployed against the enemy because it just couldn't be put out. It could not be put out once it had set something ablaze. The only things that uh, would extinguish it were substances like sand and vinegar, not the sort of substances you generally have on hand on a warship. And it wasn't just the physical destruction and, and the physical aspect of this, uh, this weapon that, uh, that made it as powerful as it was. Perhaps even more so, it was the psychological damage that Greek fire did. It was a terrifying weapon to behold. It was so frightening. It was one that you didn't want to be on the wrong side of. So 
the only real way to prevent your fleet from going up in flames while fighting the Byzantines, the only way to prevent all of your sailors from fleeing in a panic and, and you know, consigning themselves to, to, to Davy Jones' locker was to keep your distance, and a fair distance at that. The, the siphons had a, a pretty short range, all things considered. They couldn't spray the Greek fire great distances. So the best way to avoid it was to stay away from the Byzantine ships and attempt to attack them at range. But even then, the Byzantines didn't really mind that much because they armed their ships with catapults and ballistae and they'd start shooting at you from range as well. So you really didn't have an easy time of it going up against the Byzantines. And um, it wasn't just sort of ship-to-ship combat uh, that, that Greek fire also impacted. It was also the fact that Greek fire could be used to create obstacles on the terrain, I guess. I don't know if you can describe water as terrain. I don't know if, ter- if sea counts as terrain. But you could stop an enemy's advance on land or on the sea by spraying a long line of Greek fire in front of you. And all of a sudden, wall of fire, mate. You didn't even need to burn the bloody fourth level spell slot. Um, plus, on top of being a naval super weapon and a way to slow down oncoming enemies, it was, as I mentioned, it, it was a, an inc- incredibly effective anti-siege weapon. Um, it played havoc with siege engines, and this meant that besieging uh, Byzantine cities became a very tough assignment indeed. So... Greek fire had a massive impact on the conflict the Byzantines fought and greatly aided them in securing and holding on to their might and power across centuries. But hang on one second, you might be saying at this point. Okay, sure, the the Byzantines, they've got this super weapon, it's devastating, blah, 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 all the rest of it. Why aren't we taking a different approach altogether when attempting to deal with this new post-Greek fire reality in which we live, right? Why aren't we taking an approach backed up by not just one, but two modern-day sayings, right? The first being, if you can't beat them, join them. And the second being, fight fire with fire. Here's a question. Why did the enemies of the Byzantine Empire simply not start using Greek fire against the Byzantines themselves and, in doing so, level the playing field? Well, check it out. They couldn't. They could not figure out the secret of Greek fire, not even individual elements of it. We'll come to the chemical composition in a little bit, but even the siphon itself must have been too complex to use without proper knowledge, because at one point, right, while fighting the Bulgars, the Byzantines had over 30 of their dromans captured with fully operational siphons and full tanks of Greek fire. But not only were the Bulgars unable to leverage this weapon against the Byzantines, they also couldn't figure out how to replicate it. The Islamic world throughout the, the apex of the Byzantine Empire was filled with the, the, the cleverest people on earth, the most gifted and advanced chemists the world had seen at that point. And even they couldn't uncover the secret of Greek fire. Everyone tried, of course. Everyone who had a vested interest in trying to beat the Byzantines at sea was attempting to unravel the mystery of what this substance was, but no one could. So they couldn't beat them but nor could they join them. They couldn't fight fire with fire. For these researchers, these chemists, these scientists attempt to unravel the secret of Greek fire, they couldn't do it. It was too difficult. It was too incomprehensible. It was too detailed and complex, this, this whole process, the creation of it, the, the, the design, the operation of, of deployment mechanisms. It was just well beyond their understanding. I, I, I guess it's fair to say, you could probably say, that uh, it was all Greek to them. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And these poor people who are on the wrong end of Greek fire, you could forgive them for thinking that the Byzantines were sorcerers. Or wizards, I guess. Or druids. Or, no, no, not warlocks, right? No, actually, yes. 
fiend packed warlocks, right? They still get wall of fire, don't they? At level seven, yeah. And oh wait, no. So do um so do light domain clerics. So look, I guess I'm saying there are a lot of D and D classes that the Byzantines could have been. Uh, let's see which classes get blindness as well. Bards do even that. Yeah, no. So uh, what about the spell castration? Uh, I don't think I don't think that's in the player's handbook. Anyway. Enough frivolity, enough of these jests and japes. This is a very serious history podcast after all, and it's now time to talk about the most serious and uh, honestly also the most fascinating part of the story of Greek fire, how it was made. It's very unusual for us today to not have access to historical technologies. Um, We might not use these technologies, sure, but we at least still understand them and we can replicate them if we want to. Uh, for pleasure, or in some cases just even out of necessity. Things like water wells or horse-drawn carriages or wood-burning stoves. These old technologies aren't in the widespread use that they once were, but it's not like we've forgotten how they work. There are countless things we've left behind in the scrap heap of history that we still have a full understanding of. Um, You know, papyrus scrolls, wax cylinder phonographs, blockbuster video. We still understand the function of these ancient and forgotten things. But this is not the case with Greek fire, which is, it's fair to say, a lost technology. There are other historical technologies that we're uncertain about, like Damascus steel and Roman concrete, but much about Greek fire remains a near total mystery to us to this very day. This is how strictly kept it was as a military secret by the Byzantines. Its recipe has been lost to time because of how closely they guarded it. We don't know how it was made. We don't know what it was made from, although we do have some details here and there. Um, Initial theory suggested that it was primarily made with saltpetre, potassium nitrate, an important important ingredient in gunpowder, of course. Episode 115, get across it. But this theory doesn't hold up for two reasons. First, uh, chemically speaking, saltpetre wouldn't behave as Greek fire is described to have. Uh, It would be explosive rather rather than just incendiary. And secondly... Saltpeter wasn't weaponized outside of Eastern Asia before the 13th century, and the Islamic world had some of the best chemists at the time, as I said. Uh, if the secret of Greek fire was saltpeter, then they probably would have figured it out because they had saltpeter figured out by the end of things as well. So, no, it's not saltpeter. What about quicklime, uh, calcium oxide? Used in everything from construction to metalworking, the Byzantines definitely would have had access to quicklime, uh, which heats up extremely quickly and extremely hotly. Uh, when exposed to water, of all things. Uh, And this, hey, this explains it, right? This could be enough to then ignite fuel that was otherwise flammable or combustible or whatever, uh, and then start the burning process, given that Greek fire was impervious to water and may have indeed been intensified by water rather than extinguished. Could could quicklime have been the key ingredient behind it, which which is known, of course, to react aggressively with water? No, it could not have been, uh, because there are plenty of sources that talk about Greek fire igniting without having access to water, uh, especially in land-based battles. And on top of this, while quicklime does react with water, there might have been a little too much water for it to react with on the, you know, open sea. So, no, it's not made of quicklime, not primarily at least. Both quicklime and saltpeter could have been an ingredient, but they weren't the most important one, that's almost certain. The leading theory at the moment is that the Byzantines used crude oil, petroleum, uh, which they would have had ready access to at various locations around the uh, around the Black Sea. And with this, they could have cooked up a napalm-like substance using natural thickeners like animal fat and pine resin. Remember I mentioned before it was quite a thick and a sticky and a viscous uh, substance. And uh, stuff like animal fat, stuff like pine resin uh, was flammable and also, right, not only 
would serve as, as fuel for the fire, but also made this liquid thick and sticky and viscous. But modern reproductions of this theorized liquid based on petroleum have not had the same effect as Greek fire, particularly after being doused with water. So there must have been other ingredients as well. What were the Byzantines' 11 secret herbs and spices? We simply do not know. It could have been sulfur, tar, alcohol, camphor, phosphane. Could have been bloody wing of bat and eye of toad, mate. Who knows? We certainly don't. And interestingly, most of the Byzantines didn't either, even the ones involved in making Greek fire. I mentioned before how the creation of Greek fire, this process, right, was compartmentalized. Uh, apparently only the very upper echelons of the Byzantine power structure knew all the secrets of Greek fire. The emperors, top military commanders or advisors, chief engineers. Apart from that, it was a strictly kept secret. Even the people who actually worked to make Greek fire um, only worked on one step of the whole process. They couldn't betray its secret because they only knew, say, step five of the recipe. And then the people who actually used Greek fire in warfare they didn't understand how it was made, only how to deploy it as a weapon. And this meant that there weren't very many people who could betray the secret of Greek fire. The people who knew the secret were hardly going to be the ones to, to turn it over to the Byzantine Emperor Empire's enemies. So in this way, the Byzantines kept a secret so well that we today in the 21st century with our lab coats and our laboratories and our periodic tables still can't figure out what was going on with this stuff. Countless modern chemists have attempted to recreate Greek fire, and broadly speaking, have not been able to. They haven't been able to uncover the secret of a liquid that burns furiously even when doused with water. It is still, to this day, a magical-sounding substance, because we just don't know how to make it. Not that we, you know really need to. This is the other thing. When it comes to incendiary weapons these days, it's not like we're lacking uh, lacking anything meaningful because we don't have Greek fire. We've got napalm, uh, which not only burns at a thousand degrees, but can be very conveniently packaged up into little fire bombs, loaded into planes and used to set fire to thousands and thousands of square meters all in one go. Um, also, not all that many warships are made of wood these days. So, it's not as if all the military scientists around the world are in their labs trying to crack the lost formula of Greek fire so they can, uh, I don't know, mount a siphon on the front of an aircraft carrier. All the same, I do find it fascinating to think about Greek fire and how we, in the modern age, with what often feels like omniscience when it comes to historical technologies, have lost its secret. This is not a niche, obscure technology. This is a technology that helped to define an empire, a mighty empire, the most powerful and important empire in medieval European history. The Byzantines were incontestable on the sea for hundreds of years thanks to their secret superweapon, but even that wasn't enough to save them, as the empire eventually fell into decline thanks to its collapsing economy, its internal instability, and of course, increasing incursions from the east, and with the end of the Byzantine Empire came the loss of Greek fire. But at this point in history, another type of weapon is beginning to spread across Europe, one that will usher in a new age of warfare, gunpowder. A full history of which is available, as I said, in episode 115, Get Across It. Anyway, when you think about it, perhaps the loss of Greek fire isn't actually such a bad thing. 
After all, we already have countless ways to kill each other. It's not like we need another one, let alone one that is so horrific and so terrifying. We talked earlier about modern sayings, fighting fire with fire and the like, and if I were approached today by someone who said that they had discovered the secret of Greek fire and, you know, were going to offer it to me, I think I'd probably be pretty wary of them. Because after all, don't people say, beware of Greeks bearing gifts? But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Greek fire, or as much of it as I can tell you uh, because of uh, because of what has been lost to history. It'll be very interesting to uh, to find out if uh, anyone does uncover the, the secret of Greek fire, but also, again, largely irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. An interesting curiosity, but uh, I doubt that its military applications have, uh, have aged all that well, you know. 600 years after it fell out of fashion. Anyway, thanks for listening to this episode of Half House History. I've got some good news. I've got some good news for fans of the contact form. Um, uh, those who, those of you who have visited the, the website halfhousehistory.net and attempted to use the contact form the last week, uh, you will have come across the note I put there saying that it was not working. I don't know what that was. It just wasn't sending the emails through. Um, and so if you sent an email earlier on uh, last week through the contact form, I almost certainly didn't get it. Uh, if you want to resend it, that'd be fine. Otherwise, no worries, whatever. Uh, but it is working again. I'm happy to say that I fixed it by removing it from the site and then putting it back up again. And that did the job. So really, really advanced troubleshooting. Certainly, uh, certainly, you know, poured a, a huge amount of, oh, oh, look, it was tens of seconds that I spent on solving that problem. You know, blood, sweat and tears were not even a consideration when it was a very easy thing to do. Anyway, it's back up there then. If you want to, if you want to get in touch, that is definitely the best way to do it. Uh, you can email the show as well. The email is in the, in the show's description, but uh, for, for guaranteed, um, uh, those emails don't always, uh, some, some hit the spam filter. So the best way is always through the, uh, the, the contact form, which as I say, should be working again. Uh, and thank you to everyone who's been uh, who's been getting in touch. Had some terrific emails this week. Uh, I am appreciative, uh, especially appreciative of all the feedback that I got um, from the uh, the the Kiwi History episodes over the last couple of weeks. Um, a lot of it very positive. Some of it constructive in ways that I'm I, I'm very grateful for. I, uh, I was pleasantly surprised to hear uh, from a few listeners that my uh, my Te Reo Māori pronunciation actually wasn't too bad. So there you go. I'll uh, I'll take that one. That's uh, that's uh, that's a bit of good news. Now I just have to master, you know. Dutch, and then, then I'll uh, then I'll be good to go. Anyway, I want to thank all the people who uh, who listened to the last couple of episodes and uh, and wrote in to get in touch uh, with it, with their thoughts and their feelings. Even if you were critical, it was uh, it was it was very worthwhile for me to read through uh, what what you had to say about them. And uh, and I, I'm very grateful to to everyone who who writes in. Of course, uh, I read every single email that I get, even if I can't reply to them all. Every single one does get read and thought about. So uh, it's worth getting in touch if you feel like it. Again, halfasystory.net use the contact form there. Um, and if you want to support the show more directly, um, the best way to do that is via Patreon, patreon.com slash history. And hoo boy, we've had a, uh, a big long list of people sign up in the last week. So thank you very, very much to Stephen Bailey, Tom Perry, Matthias Tutak, uh, Peter Kidd, Ronan Birch, Bettina Berger, Ashley McKinley, uh, Glenn and Connor. That's two different people. That's not Glenn, Connor. That's both Glenn and Connor. Uh, thank you to all of these new exalted patrons, and of course, plenty of room. The water's wa- water's fine. Why don't you jump in with us here? Uh, Patreon.com slash History. Gain access to all sorts of exclusive behind-the-scenes stuff, show notes, um, uh, uncut episodes, early access, and of course, ad-free listening. Always uh, always available over on Patreon.com slash History. Anyway, 
That's the end of another episode. Uh, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Uh, I'll catch up with you in a couple of days uh, for Quarter House History. Monument's coming up uh, after that. And then, of course, in a week's time, another full-length episode will be coming your way. But until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. Of course, this one comes to us from Cooper0505, a budding arsonist, it seems. We've chatted a lot about fire today. And Cooper0505 wants to know, how do they store fire in matches? Matches.